Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello. My name is Matthew Lewis. I'm delighted to be here today at the Tudor Summit. Now, I have a confession before we start. I'm a Ricardian. So what am I doing here at the Tudor Summit? Well, there's only one topic for me to be here to talk about, and that's the Princes in the Tower. Specifically, the survival of the Princes in the Tower. So who are the boys that we're talking about? These are the sons of King Edward IV, and they were Edward V, who at his father's death in April 1483 was aged 12, and his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York, who was aged nine. They're called the Princes in the Tower because these boys are believed to have disappeared from the Tower of London. Now, the fact that they were there in the beginning is not too surprising. The Tower of London was the traditional place for a medieval monarch to prepare for his coronation. When Edward V arrived in London, he was installed at the Bishop of London's palace and later moved to the Tower of London so that he could prepare for his coronation, which would never take place. The Tower of London didn't quite possess the same dark and bloody reputation that it was to acquire under the Tudors uh, during the medieval period. It was a royal palace, it was a royal armoury, and it was used as a prison as well. But it was a busy, working royal palace. The prime suspect in the assumed murder of the princes in the Tower has always been their uncle, King Richard III, who took the throne after Edward V. And that has to be fair enough, he has to be the prime suspect. We can ascribe him with the motive the means and the opportunity that any murder inquiry might look for. In terms of his motive, the boys were a potential threat to him. Yes, they'd been declared illegitimate, but that illegitimacy could be overturned as easily as it had been put in place. He had the means. He was the king. He was the most powerful man in the country. He only had to give the order. He only had to say the word and it would be done. And he had the opportunity. The boys were under his protection. They were in his care. They were his responsibility. We have reports from the continent that tell us that Richard killed the princes in the tower. We have a report from the Spanish ambassador de Puebla in 1486 who told his masters that it was well known that Richard III had killed his nephews, and yet it wasn't well known at all. We have an even earlier report to the French Parliament in 1484 which explains that Richard III had killed his nephews and taken their throne. How could the foreign commentators be more certain than the people in England were? The likely answer is that they weren't. The Spanish in 1486 had their own agenda. They were looking for an alliance with Henry VII's new Tudor England that would result in the marriage alliance between Prince Arthur and Catherine of Aragon. Even in 1484, the French, who don't really need an excuse to be getting at the English during this period, uh, had their own succession crisis going on. 
Louis XI had died not long after Edward IV, and he had left a minor king behind him, Charles VIII. The Duke of Orléans was threatening Charles VIII's throne, and this warning was probably meant to say, we shouldn't be like the English, we shouldn't risk this, we should support our minor king. So the agenda for these reports is clear to see. We have contemporary reports from within England as well. John Rouse, the Warwickshire antiquarian, tells us that Richard III murdered his nephews. But he wrote this in 1486, and during Richard III's lifetime, Rouse had been effusive in his praise of the king. After the Battle of Bosworth, he found himself scurrying round England, collecting his manuscripts and rewriting them, to give Richard a darker reputation as an evil tyrant. We can see rumours reaching as far as Bristol, perhaps carried by merchants heading to the ports, that the boys had been put to silence, though that may not necessarily mean death, and it certainly doesn't mention Richard III being involved. So there are contemporary reports that point the finger, at least nominally, at Richard III for the, for the act. My main issue, amongst others, with the guilt of Richard III has always lain in his motive. If Richard killed the boys, then it was to stop them being a threat to his throne. But they would only stop being a threat to his throne if he publicised the fact that they were dead. He needed everyone to know that they were dead and no longer available to threaten him. He could have claimed that was natural causes, he could have claimed that someone else had killed them. It didn't even really matter whether people believed him, as long as they knew that they were dead. During this period, bodies were frequently displayed after their death to prove that the person was dead. It happened to the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Warwick's brother, the Marquis of Montague, and it happened to Henry VI as well. So why was Richard remain silent? If he killed the boys and remained silent on the issue, it meant that he killed them for nothing. It served no purpose. Before we leave the notion of the boys being murdered in 1483, there are other suspects that we can discuss. Most prominently, Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham. Now we have contemporary sources that point the finger at the Duke of Buckingham almost as often as we see it pointed at Richard III. There's suggestions that he plotted to kill the princes himself. There's suggestions that he advised Richard III to do it. All we can really say for sure is that no one seems to have known exactly what had happened. We can give Henry Stafford the means, the motive and the opportunity. In terms of his motive, in 1483 he was looking to put a Henry on the throne. Now whether that was Henry Tudor, whose invasion he supported in 1483, or whether he indeed planned to place himself on the throne in the end, is not clear. But certainly he had a motive for wanting heirs to the throne out of the way. He had the means, he was the second most powerful man in England at this point. He was second only in authority to Richard, he could give the word every bit as much as Richard could. And he had the opportunity. For example, we know that Buckingham stayed behind in London after Richard departed on his Northern Progress, after his coronation in 1483. At this point I also like to, perhaps mischievously, throw in Margaret Beaufort amongst the list of suspects. Not because I believe she killed the princes in the tower, indeed I'm here to argue that they weren't killed at all, but because I don't think she can be dismissed as a potential suspect quite as easily as some people like to think. If we look simply at the motive, the means and the opportunity, her motive was plain, she wanted to put her son Henry on the throne. I've seen it argued that she needed to kill a swathe of other Yorkist heirs before she could achieve this, but that ignores the fact that Henry Tudor led an invasion of England in October 1483 with the express intention of putting him on the throne. And we're told by the Cronen Chronicler that this was done with the mere rumour that the princes in the tower were dead. So Margaret didn't need to kill this whole swathe of Yorkist heirs at all. In fact, she didn't even need to kill the princes in the tower. The rumour that they were dead was enough to see her son invading in October 1483 trying to take Richard's throne. 
we can give her the means. She was high in favour during 1483. She had carried Queen Anne's train at the coronation. Her husband, Thomas Stanley, was also high in favour and was prominently involved in the coronation. Both were in London during this period and could have gained access to a royal palace if they'd wished to. Her opportunity also lies in the fact that we can place her in London during this period, just like thousands and thousands and thousands of other people. So do I think those remains in an urn in the Lady Chapel in Westminster Abbey belong to the princes in the tower? No, I don't. The examination that was undertaken in the 1930s was incomplete. It didn't date the skeletons. They could go back to Anglo-Saxon times. They could even go back to Roman times. There's been buildings on that site for thousands of years. It couldn't age the skeletons accurately. Uh, there was congenital bone defects, which we now know affect the ageing process far more than they knew in the 1930s. They couldn't even sex the skeletons. We don't know whether these were boys or girls, or one boy and one girl, let alone tell whether they were related to each other. So there's too many questions to say that those bones belong to the princes in the tower. So I've often wondered, what if they survived? What if they didn't die at all in 1483? Now obviously we don't have any concrete evidence of this, but I've likened their continued existence to a black hole. We can't see them, we can't see the black hole, but we can see the gravitational effect that it has on those around them, the people that would have cared about them and been affected by their continued existence. And perhaps the most prominent of these would have been Elizabeth Woodville, their mother. And in this instance, it's possibly striking that in 1484, uh, in March, she releases her daughters from Sanctuary in Westminster Abbey into the care of Richard III. Is this really the actions of a mother with a man who she believes has murdered her sons? We know Elizabeth would find a Richard capable of killing her children. He'd ordered the execution of one of her sons from her first marriage to Richard Grey. But he was a grown man and there are aspects of treason possibly involved uh, in his execution and it's very different to two boys being secretly murdered in the Tower of London. And in March Richard had seen off the October 1483 rebellion, his parliament had sat in February, his title had been legally declared, the illegitimacy of the princes in the Tower had been legally confirmed, Maybe he was just then in a position to go to Elizabeth Woodville with proof that her boys were safe and well and alive, and perhaps even offer her the chance to see them during his reign. What I'd really like to talk about today is the two pretenders who worried Henry VII most during his reign, and the first of those was Lambert Simnel. The official story tells us that he was a boy from Oxford, plucked by a priest and taken to Ireland, trained to impersonate Edward Earl of Warwick, who was a prisoner of Henry VII in the Tower of London during this period, and then invaded at the head of a Yorkist army, which was defeated at the Battle of Stoke Field, where Lambert was captured and placed in the royal kitchens as an act of mercy for his innocence in the whole affair. The whole business has been given the air of ridicule by the fact that Warwick was a prisoner in the Tower of London. He was brought out and paraded round London, so how could he possibly have been in Ireland? I'd like to suggest now that the Lambert Simnel affair was never an attempt to place Edward Earl of Warwick on the throne, or to use an imposter to pretend to be him. I'd like to suggest that the Lambert Simnel affair was an attempt to place Edward V back on the throne of England. Now obviously again we have no concrete evidence of this, but I think there's enough to suggest that this was a potential re revolt in favour of Edward V. Polydore Virgil, one of the official Tudor sources who wrote at the behest of Henry VII, tells us of this period that it was about a boy who was an adolescent. Now in Polydore Virgil's original Latin manuscript he described the boy as an adolescent, an adolescent, and that word was later changed before it was published in the 1530s to puer, boy, 
to suggest that he was someone younger. The parliamentary attainder of John de la Pole described the boy as a lad of 10, which is hardly an adolescent. Edward Earl of Warwick in the Tower of London was 12 at this time, again hardly an adolescent. If Edward V was still alive, he would have been 16 in 1487, and that would have made him, viably, an adolescent. Perhaps Polydor Virgil was describing Edward V as an adolescent and was forced to change his story to make it a boy of a more correct age for the official version. Polydor Virgil also described this as an attempt to restore the boy to his throne. Yet Edward Earl of Warwick had never been King of England, so he couldn't be restored to the throne at all. The only person capable of being restored to the throne in 1487 was Edward V. There's corroboration for this in the account provided by Bernard André, again another official Tudor source, the blind poet-priest who was tutored to Prince Arthur. André tells us of this event, that in Ireland a boy emerged who claimed to be the son of Edward IV, and he was crowned King Edward in Dublin. A son of Edward IV named Edward can only be Edward V. A coronation in Dublin might fit the bill too. The coronation had been the only part missing from Edward V's previous stint as king. He'd been proclaimed king, but never crowned. Perhaps the coronation was meant to correct that. Andre also tells us that Henry sent a flurry of messengers backwards and forwards to Ireland, trying to ascertain who was involved in this conspiracy and exactly what was going on. Eventually a herald, who Bernard Andre frustratingly doesn't name, came forward and said that he could identify the sons of Edward IV if this was really one of them. It's been suggested that this herald was Roger Machado, who had served Edward IV, had served Richard III, and served Henry VII with distinction as a diplomat and a herald. Interestingly, Roger Machado, if it was him, lived in Southampton and kept a house there on Simnel Street, so that could explain where the surname for this boy eventually came from. Uh, Bernard Andre tells us that whoever this herald was, he travelled over to Ireland, and when he came back, Andre tells us he was unable to tell Henry VII that this boy wasn't a real son of Edward IV. They blamed the fact that he'd been too well taught and too well schooled to impersonate him, yet this herald had claimed that he knew the boys and could physically identify them. Yet on his return, he said that he couldn't deny that the boy was who he claimed to be. If we accept for a moment the possibility that the Lambert Simnel affair was a plot in favour of Edward V, it helps to make sense of other events which otherwise don't quite add up. In early 1487, Elizabeth Woodville, the mother of the princes in the tower, was deprived of all of her lands and property, and she retired to Bermondsey Abbey, where she saw out the rest of her life. The official version of this, according to Virgil, was that Henry VII suddenly became so outraged at the March 1484 handing over of her daughters that he felt compelled to deprive Elizabeth Woodville of everything. It's possible there was a financial motive behind it. Uh, Henry wasn't well off at the time and Elizabeth had her dower, which Henry may have wished to pass on to his own wife, Elizabeth Woodville's daughter. Yet it's also been suggested that Elizabeth was deprived of her properties because she was implicated in the Lambert Simnel affair. And if it was a plot in favour of Edward V, then that's highly likely. She's unlikely to have been involved in a plot to favour Edward Earl of Warwick. She had nothing to gain by placing him on the throne. Indeed, she was implicated in his father's execution. The only thing that placed her in a better position than she currently was with her daughter as the Queen Consort on the throne was if one of her sons was on the throne, Edward V or Richard Duke of York. This would also make sense of the fact that Thomas Grey, Elizabeth Woodville's oldest son from her first marriage, was thrown into the Tower of London at the time for no obvious reason. 
and was apparently told that if he was really loyal to Henry VII, then he wouldn't mind a stint in prison to prove it. Was this because the Woodville faction was likely to be involved in an uprising in favour of Edward V? Another person's actions to consider in this affair is John de la Pole, the Earl of Lincoln. John was the oldest nephew of Edward IV and Richard III. He was the son of their daughter Elizabeth, the Duchess of Suffolk. During Richard III's reign, John de la Pole had been widely considered his heir presumptive after the death of Richard's own son. John had his own perfectly good claim to the Yorkist crown. Why did he overlook this? Why was he willing to set that aside? Why did no one wish to follow a grown man and instead they favoured a young boy who was a prisoner in the Tower of London and who was still affected by his father's attainder? The only person who had a legitimate better claim to the Yorkist crown in 1487 than John de la Pole would have been Edward V or Richard Duke of York. Is it possible that John de la Pole overlooked his own claim in favour of that of his cousin, King Edward V? It's also interesting to note that the records of the Parliament that was held in Ireland in 1487 were completely and utterly destroyed on the orders of Henry VII. Perhaps they'd said something there that he didn't wish to see the light of day. We actually have no record in a contemporary hand or in the King's hand of the regnal number used by this King from Dublin. There's a later record that appears in the York House books in which a letter the King sent to the city is entered under the heading that it was received from King Edward VI. Yet we know that was the official Tudor story later on. In the letter itself, the boy doesn't use a regnal number to identify himself. Perhaps the Parliament in Ireland was far more explicit in describing him as King Edward V, restored to his throne at the age of an adolescent, as other Tudor sources have suggested. The second pretender, who was to worry Henry VII far more deeply and for far longer, was Perkin Warbeck. And here the official story is not dissimilar. He was a boy from nowhere, he was a lad from Tournai, who was plucked and trained to impersonate Richard Duke of York, the younger of the princes in the tower. He was later captured, he confessed to his imposture, spent a small time at Henry's court and was then imprisoned before eventually being executed in 1499 after being caught trying to escape the Tower of London. But was Perkin genuine? Was he the real Richard Duke of York? I think that's entirely possible on the evidence that we have. The first thing we can consider is the sketch that was made of Perkin during his time in Burgundy and the similarities to his purported father, Edward IV. Now obviously if you're sketching Perkin Warbeck you want him to look like Edward IV because you're claiming he's his son. Now this was a boy who went on to be seen around the courts of Europe by heads of state and by Englishmen on the continent who were involved in the conspiracy and no one ever said that he didn't look like the sketch, that he didn't look like Edward IV. The sketch marks his hair with the note Lon which suggests that it was meant to be blonde in the final portrait. In his confession Perkin Warbeck would claim that his mother was a lady of Portuguese extraction and whilst that might not make blonde hair entirely impossible it would seem to make it somewhat unlikely. The other thing to consider on the sketch is the possible mark around the left eye that we can see. Now we know a fault in the eye was a Plantagenet trait, we know that Henry III and Edward I both had drooping eyelids. And War Perkin Warbeck would claim all the way through his imposture that he had three physical signs that would identify him to anyone that knew the real Richard Duke of York. Frustratingly we don't know exactly what these signs were, they were never documented, but when he was captured, Henry VII never either proved that Perkin didn't have the marks that Richard Duke of York had, or proved that Richard Duke of York never had the marks that Perkin was showing. And he had access 
to the prince's sisters to try and find this out. Was this mark in the left eye one of the marks that Perkin claimed would prove he was the real Richard Duke of York? If it was, it may make sense of something later on in the story. Perkin garnered support from heads of state all around Europe. Charles VIII, perhaps not unsurprisingly, was willing to cause trouble for the English, and Henry VII mounted a flash invasion of France that secured uh, Charles's promise to cease supporting Perkin and to expel him from his territories. King James IV of Scotland, equally, would have an interest in causing problems for the English, yet he supported Perkin, provided him with a noble wife, and never once denied him, even when he'd failed in his invasions of England. Margaret, the Dowager Duchess of Burgundy, is perhaps, again, no surprise in her support for Perkin. She was the sister of Edward IV and of Richard III. She hated Henry VII, and she dedicated her life to replacing Yorkist heirs on the throne. Yet if that was her intention, why would she take a boy from nowhere and pretend that he was a Yorkist heir, when she had nephews who were available to be used in a plot? Maximilian I was perhaps the most prominent in his support for Perkin Warbeck throughout this period. Maximilian never once denied Perkin, even after his capture and even after he confessed to his imposture. Maximilian still referred to him as Richard Duke of York and tried to get Henry VII to treat him fairly. Perhaps the highest profile casualty of the conspiracy in England was Sir William Stanley. He was the younger brother of Thomas Lord Stanley, who by now was Earl of Derby, and it was William's intervention at the Battle of Bosworth that had won the day for Henry Tudor. William had been close to Edward IV and was a servant of Henry VII. He was at the centre of Tudor politics. When Robert Clifford, who had been trumpeting the fact that he was certain Perkin Warbeck was the real Richard Duke of York all around the continent, returned to England with his tail between his legs, he appeared before Henry begging for a pardon. To try and gain this, he offered Henry a list of all the conspirators within England and William Stanley was in the room when his own name was read out amongst those and was perhaps shocked and concerned to hear it read out. Stanley was arrested uh, and in line with a lot of the other events surrounding this we have no record of William Stanley's state trials amongst the papers and records of all of the state trials in England. The only accounts we have come from Tudor commentators who tell us that William Stanley did not deny any part in the conspiracy he admitted that he'd sent letters backwards and forwards to Robert Clifford. He admitted that he'd spoken to other conspirators too. And he also didn't deny that he'd once said that he would never take up arms against this boy if he turned out to be the real son of King Edward IV. And that must at least tell us that someone as close to the centre of Tudor politics as William Stanley couldn't be certain that the princes in the tower had actually died in 1483 or at any point after that. He acknowledged the possibility that at least one of them was still alive. After Perkin was captured, he signed a confession, although I would suggest that perhaps this confession was prepared for him and that he was forced to sign it under torture. There are parts of it that simply don't make too much sense, they don't add up. For example, in one part he talks about when he arrives in Ireland and people identify him as potentially being the Earl of Warwick or Richard Duke of York, and he denies all of this but is eventually bullied into impersonating Richard Duke of York. He then claims that, as a boy from Tournai, in his mid to late teens, he was forced to learn English and he went on to learn it so well that during his time across Europe and meeting Englishmen no one ever questioned his command of the English language or his accent. It seems a bit ludicrous that he could be forced to learn it that well. If we return for a moment to that fault in the left eye, it's striking that Bernard André in his account of the affair tells us that when Perkin was captured he was brought before Henry while still in the southwest. 
but he only appeared before the king after the king's servants had beaten him black and blue. It's possible here that there was an effort to obscure his obviously Plantagenet looks, or even to obscure the mark in his left eye that let everybody know that he definitely was Richard Duke of York. The beatings appear to have continued. We have one Herald's account which describes him having a lack of luster in his left eye and being ugly. And we have the Spanish ambassador de Puebla who had an audience with Perkin on several occasions describing him in one of the later meetings as disfigurada. Now this has been translated often as changed but it more accurately means disfigured. And I would suggest that perhaps the beatings particularly to Perkin's face had continued after he'd arrived in London in an effort to obscure his features so that no one could tell that he may well have been the real Richard Duke of York. Perkin Warbeck was executed in 1499 along with Edward Earl of Warwick when both were entangled in a plot to escape from the Tower of London. It's widely believed that the Spanish had insisted on Edward Earl of Warwick's execution before Catherine of Aragon would arrive in England so that all of the Yorkist heirs were well out of the way. Perkin then becomes a victim of the desire to be rid of Edward Earl of Warwick. It's perhaps convenient to get rid of another pain at the same time. But what if it was actually the other way around? What if Perkin Warbeck was the real Duke of York and was the one that the Spanish were insistent was got out of the way and that Edward Earl of Warwick was a side effect or a casualty of that affair? Or what if the Spanish insisted that both of them had to be killed because they were both legitimate or Yorkist heirs? In this regard, it's interesting that the Spanish uh, private secret government paperwork of this period uh, is written in a code that's been decoded and broken so that we can see what they wrote. And whilst we might think ambassadors and public letters would have agendas in what they say, these were very private letters that were never meant to see the light of day. These were meant for kings and queens and their ministers. It's striking that when the Codex was found, there's a section within it that says that it lists the members of the Royal Houses of Europe and the Pope. And it specifically says in the introduction that if you're looking for someone who isn't a member of a royal family, then look elsewhere because they won't be listed here. Now the code that was used to describe Perkin Warbeck throughout the 1390s in all of this secret encoded paperwork is found in this section. And when it's decoded, the name given is Richard Duke of York. So throughout the 1490s, the Spanish consistently referred to Perkin Warbeck as the real Richard Duke of York, a member of the Royal House of England. Did they know that he was genuine, or at least suspect that he could well have been genuine? This might explain their need to be rid of him before Catherine of Aragon arrived in England. Now, as I said at the beginning, there's no concrete evidence for all of this, but I think there's lots to suggest that there's more to the story than we often believe. Uh, my latest book, The Survival of the Princes in the Tower, goes into a lot more detail about all of these events. It looks at the contemporary evidence during 1483, 1484 and 1485 that the boys were still alive, that they weren't killed by their uncle Richard. It looks at the possibilities that they were Lambert Simnel, Perkin Warbeck or possibly even other figures. There are several theories of how they might have survived during the Tudor period and they're all examined in this book. Thank you very much for listening to this talk, I hope you've enjoyed it and thank you for having me here at the Tudor Summit.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.